Welcome to the Indigo Podcast, an exploration of human flourishing at work and beyond. I'm Ben Barron of Indigo Anchor and Cleveland State University. And I'm Chris Everett of Indigo Anchor. For more information, please visit us at www.indigopodcast.com. Hey, so today we're talking about humor in the workplace with David Horning. We're going to talk about the work landscape, why humor helps, and how to and how not to incorporate humor into the workplace and leadership. That's right. That's right. So excited about this. So before I tell you a little bit about David Horning, uh, David, just say hi. Oh, hi. I'm David. Awesome. There we go. (laughs) So David has a rather unique background. He combines his eight years of comedy and a passion for positive psychology um, on a mission to transform workplace culture. He does a lot of speaking in that area, and he's done a lot of speaking with uh, companies such as SureTech Brands. He's done Sherm Talks, Disrupt HR, where he combines kind of his fun approach with uh, other things related to traditional leadership to help organizations and leaders out there. Uh, he's also the founder and chief experience officer of Water Cooler Comedy, a company that offers keynote presentations, corporate comedy shows, and humor leadership training. He also continues to perform stand-up wherever his work takes him, be it at the New York Comedy Festival, the Cleveland Comedy Festival, and at clubs all over the United States. So he, I do want to mention, since I am a Northeast Ohio person. Uh, He is in Northeast Ohio. He's a Clevelander, which is great. Uh, And also in 2020, he launched his podcast, You Can't Laugh at That, which uh, explores the ins and outs of humor theory, stand-up comedy, and joke writing to determine what makes audiences audiences laugh at touchy topics. So David Horning, welcome to the Indigo Podcast. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for having me. This uh, I was, I've been looking forward to this for a while. I didn't sleep last night. I've just been drinking coffee and doing Adderall. <laughs> so, so, <laughs> Stoked about it. <laughs> we haven't had a guest say that before, so all right. Well, let's, <laughs> it's, it's a productivity. It's a yeah. productivity thing. Yeah, there you go. Outstanding. So, um, all right. So where are we going to start here, Chris? I, was like, I guess, David, tell us. Why'd you get into comedy, man? I know. It seems like a brutal enterprise to try to get into, but wow. Oh, it's the worst. I'm a glutton for punishment is what it is. <laughs> oh, man. I, I mean, it, it's been, I've loved making people laugh since I was a kid. Like the minute I made an entire class laugh once, I was like, oh, I can do this all the time. <laughs> and the teachers hated that. And uh, I kind of I kind of grew up kind of learning how to toe that line to where I could disrupt the class without getting in trouble. And that was always fun for me. And then uh, and then I ended up going to school, uh, first of all, for journalism, uh, because I, I love to write. But the uh, the confines in which you could be a journalist, at least at that time, this was 2006, which in hindsight isn't that long ago. But in terms of how journalism has developed, it is worlds apart. But uh, the the confines within that that I had to work uh, were a little bit too limiting for me. So I decided, you know what, I want to make a difference in the world. I've always been interested in politics, so I got a political science degree. But in doing so, I learned that you can have more impact on other people, perhaps outside of the the political realm. And uh, you know, I learned that politics are about politics and not about people, and that bothered me. Uh, so I, um, a buddy of mine, moved to New York to pursue acting. And I thought, well, if he can do that, why can't I go out there and do and make people laugh? Hmm. And uh, it kind of that idea kind of started uh, when I lost a, a loved one, a close relative of mine was killed. And I remember being able to just the minute I was able to laugh about it, uh, it really opened a whole new perspective of the whole situation. And, you know, I kind of lightened the mood at the uh, at the funeral 
And that being able to make other people laugh was like, oh, this is what I want to do. This, I can actually make a living doing this. And uh, yeah, long story short, here we are. Yeah. Well, brought fantastic. me to this podcast, all of that. <laughs> this is the culmination. That's right. You've been training for this all your life. Mm, this is it. That's what I'm saying. That's what I was up all night, man. It's, it's all down, downhill after this, man. Um, and what's the comedy version of 8 Mile? Because I, I just watched Hamilton. And somebody said, you know, Hamilton is basically, you know, Revolutionary War 8 Mile. Yeah, I don't know if there is a, a, a comedian eight mile. Oh man, we uh, we should write that. Let's yeah. <laughs> right because it's like mom spaghetti, and then Hamilton was all like, "Not gonna miss my shot." Yeah, not you know, or my what, shot. Yeah. So anyway, so yeah. so how'd you it's go be a from hip-hop component? How'd you go from comedy to speaking? This kind of came about, I got into, uh, I read The Happiness Advantage by Sean Accor, which that, and with that book, uh, The Success Principles by Jack Canfield, uh, things like um, uh, What to Say When You Talk to Yourself by Shad Helmstetter. I mean, I just started reading books on our well-being, on, on human behavior, and that, because I was trying to become a better comedy writer. Mm. And uh, that really, really fascinated me. And I thought, well, if I can make people laugh at a show they'll forget about it by the next morning. But if I can teach people how to use humor to make themselves laugh, then that's something that, you know, sticks with people for, for a long time. And uh, I mean, when you're talking about Hamilton, you know, a lot of that, the, the theme of that show is his legacy. That's, you know, it, it hampers him, but it's also what drives him. And uh, I thought, you know, when I'm gone, I want people to have learned something from me so that they can teach somebody else so that they can teach somebody else. And that, that continues. So, um, you know, so I, I left New York and I, you know, I, I love being on stage. And it's like, oh, well, if I can combine humor with these things that I've learned, how can I, you know, how can I do that in a way where I can make a living? And yeah. uh, I've, I have fallen on my face more than I have not, you know, just kind of learning the ropes <laughs> and getting up on stage. And, right. that, and finding the funny in that has kind of led me to where I am today. Because when I first started speaking, it was like, I'm going to teach people how to be happy. And that's so broad. So, you know, over the years of speaking, I've, I've narrowed it down into this niche of, no, I could teach you how to laugh um, and, and do it in a place where you're not supposed to laugh, quote yeah. unquote. And yeah. that is work. Right, right. Which kind of brings us to this first kind of point that we want to talk about, which is the work landscape. And, you know, there, there is <laughs> there's plenty to laugh about when you think about it with the workplace. Um, but, you know, when we think about work, there's certainly a lot of reasons why work stinks. And, you know, from our own experiences, from the conversations that I'm sure many of us have with our friends and our family members, they all have a lot of reasons why their work stinks. And so I think we will unpack that a little bit and, uh, you know, kind of kind of just to talk about this, the, the work landscape and this need for uh, some other approaches and some other ideas that leaders can take into their workplaces. Yeah. yeah. So the Gallup poll is always touted around there, David. You, have you seen the Gallup poll stuff about engagement numbers? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I keep an eye on that every year. <laughs> and it's. And it, it's like, you know, 35% are engaged, 13% are disengaged, 52% not engaged. Well, you see that, you're like, gosh, this is awful. Well, right. But that actually doesn't tell us what's going on in the workplace, right? So there's actually some literature from IO Psych World and a bunch of other places on why, 
why did people think that their work stinks? So Ben, what are some of those? Yeah. So, you know, and just to go back to the, the, the Gallup stats, you know, those are just, uh, they tell us something about just the broad workplace, right? They don't tell us anything about a particular organization, which I think is actually even more helpful. So if you're going to really measure engagement, which you can do, do that within your own organization, because guess what? Your organization might be a heck of a lot better or maybe worse than these kind of global statistics. But when we talk about work and why it stinks and these different things that comprise job satisfaction, you know, it comes down to a handful of things. One being, you may not like the work itself. You know, the work itself may have no variety, no autonomy. It, it doesn't connect to something bigger. Uh, you might hate your coworkers. You might have terrible pay. You might have bad supervisors or no advancement opportunities within your organization. And those can all certainly make work pretty terrible for you if you imagine all those things put together. And then maybe you feel like you're supervisor and also your organization overall just don't care about your contributions they don't care about you as a person so yeah. uh, we, we've <laughs> all been that now, have... now, now everybody's getting all depressed listening to this thinking yeah. about their lives <laughs> you, you said <laughs> you gotta... Hope, hopefully you don't have all of these going on you're like dear mm. god hopefully only have one out of five or something <laughs> yes. there's somebody at home just like check 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 why do i wake up <laughs> perhaps perhaps yeah, just yeah. subtly recommend this episode to their boss <laughs> slowly back out the door <laughs> i'm just gonna leave this here yeah. with you and and take my vacation now that's right that's hopefully right. things are different when i get back yeah but. yeah so you know if we think about that kind of that work landscape um what do you think it is that that maybe or from your perspective from what you've your what you do david that uh you know that organizations are kind of missing i think it's it's the overarching culture. I think it I think it begins with the story that we tell ourselves about work. I mean, when you think about work, the first thing that comes to your mind is usually not like I love it. I can't wait to go there. Like, you know, the the story that we tell ourselves based off of what we learn from our parents going to work. I mean, I remember when I was a kid, you know, I remember my parents coming home from work and just being stressed out and they never wanted to do anything and I'm this energetic little kid. I want to, you know, I want to run around, I want to play and my dad's like not tonight. It was a rough day at the office. And so, you know, you can you condition yourself to believe that work is this bad thing when you see your parents coming home stressed every day. So then we carry that narrative into adulthood. Not only that, but our education system kind of sets us up for failure. So, you know, when we're 18 years old, you know, we want to party. We want to, you know, we want to be irresponsible and make all the mistakes. <laughs> and they're like, no, decide what you're going to do for the next 50 years. And uh, and I think, you know, those those two things combined kind of put us in this system that kind of works against us. So when, you know, we say we hate our job, it's, you know, uh, we, we shove people into job titles and, and professions that might not suit them before they get to know who they really are and what they really want. And so I think it starts there. I think it starts with, you know, the story we tell ourselves about work. And that's, you know, that's the narrative that we have to shift if we want to, you know, find the more qualitative uh, uh, factors that that lead into engagement and disengagement. Yeah, it seems like there's some hangovers going on here from old perspectives of how jobs work. I mean, you once you like that story you tell yourself. Once you get fixed in that narrative, find a profession, find a career, work, 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 work. Trip to Disney because you have to do it. Work, 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 <laughs> retire. Right? You know that. 
that kind of becomes a hangover. But there are so many things in the environment that are just coming at us every day. Most people will hold a bunch of different jobs. But, you know, actually, the data is the boomers held a bunch of jobs, too. Mm-hmm. And, um, I can't remember the stats, but it's not that far off from what millennials and Generation Next and whatever label they come up for cohorts of people. Um, they hold a lot of jobs. But we see that, like, hey, we have globalization, automation and industry disruption that are fracturing this fantasy narrative about one. Some people hit that overarching path. Like if you become a medical doctor based on how much you've spent on school, you're probably going to be a medical doctor. You got to pay those loans, right? (laughs) But, but rather I love that idea that you're talking about exploratory because that's, that's kind of how people are rather than some fantasy narrative about how we want them to be, right? Right. I mean, that's our natural that's our natural instinct. Like naturally, human beings are hunter-gatherers, which means there aren't specialized jobs. Like, you know, they would go out in the environment and learn new things every day, what mushrooms to eat, where not to go because this animal's there or the, and then how to kill that animal so they can eat it and harvest its parts and then what not to eat and then oh, there's this new thing. Like they were always learning new things rather that there was no specific specialized like oh you just go pick berries that's your job you know that's that wasn't a thing so when we went from you, that era of humankind into the agricultural age now all of a sudden we have people living in one place and doing one job and that kind of works against our instincts so now i love how we're kind of starting to explore exploring again and uh, and i think you know that's the future of work but there's a lot of workplaces that are resistant to that because of the the whole narrative no well that's not how we've always done it and it's like, no it's not but why not try something yeah, new why that not? could be cool yeah yeah, yeah right <laughs> we could actually learn something from this well and but, what you're what you're touching on there david is actually some uh, some of the ideas that are starting to percolate around what is, you know, the future of work, the future of HR, um, you know, around these ideas of, hey, you know, these job descriptions actually aren't that helpful. I mean, we need them for certain reasons, um, but at the same time, usually by the time you write them, they're kind of out of date and uh, people tend to craft their jobs. There's actually a whole literature on what's called job crafting, where, you know, you have your different responsibilities, but you also mold that to what you like and how you operate. And, uh, you know, there are some that argue that instead of organizing work around different jobs, it's better to just kind of look at, hey, here are all the things that we need to get done. And we should instead be organizing things around the projects and tasks that have to get done and then assigning to people to them that way, which I think is, a, is another kind of completely different way to think about about work. And it, it brings up some kind of tricky logistical uh, issues when it comes to managing people. But uh, I think there's some good ideas there. There's there's two things that I, I think about on this stuff, you know, like because you're talking about division of labor kind of starts with the agricultural revolution. Right. Right. And it's like, you know, back in the day, you could be a butcher, baker, candlestick maker. Like, I don't see the butcher's son going, well, dad, I just won't feel fulfilled if I can't be a dot net developer. <laughs> right? <laughs> the classic so tale. Right? <laughs> these ideas of getting identity. Like, cause it's like, we're starting to pull this knot apart right now, just for spontaneously, but I have identity as being somebody important in a role, but wait a minute, we're getting all these sensing beacons from the environment that roles change. Globalization is happening. Automation is shifting. Maybe we, and Ben, like to your point, bringing up that we have a skill base. 
well, how do I have a strong identity based on a skill-based cohort, self-organizing work environment? Who am I? So one, (laughs) take that existential journey out of the workplace, man. (laughs) We don't have time for that. Yeah. It's scary to think about. Like you have heartbreak and love and relationship and, and to that story that you kicked off, you know, people pass away in your life. That's the humanity of your life. Mm-hmm. And then how you're going to thrive, you know, in the jungle of life becomes this different journey that it, it overlaps, but it, your identity shouldn't be tied to it, I don't think. Not not totally. Yeah. Yeah. No, not, not anymore. I mean, think about it. A lot of our last names came from our family's profession. It's like, oh, you know, I mean, I'm not sure what a horning was. Somebody... <laughs> I don't know if I want to you know. like chopped but... off elk horns. <laughs> yeah, <know>? right. <laughs> we have fixed the horns to the helmets, although they found out that that's not actually a thing anymore. But, you know, it's we <laughs> we attach ourselves to this identity that we're given at a, at a certain point. And then, you know, like as you're a kid, your parents and your teachers will tell you you're you're this, you know, you're lazy or you're you're too talkative or whatever. And then and in some of those cases, it becomes a bad thing. Uh, but you know, to go outside of that is like the more human experience is to actually learn who I am and not abide by the narrative that other people have given me. And, uh, and that's kind of like, like you said, like things happen in life. And so, you know, if you are told from a young age that you're an emotional person, you're probably going to handle that in a more emotional way uh, without actually getting to the brass tacks of like who you really are. If that right. Makes sense. You know, managers are always looking at optimization. Mm-hmm. Matter of fact, one of the books is called Scrum, How to Get Twice the Work Done in Half the Time. And so some people are like, wow, we'll be super efficient and accomplish more. And then the evil managers are like, twice the work for half the pay. Yeah. Right. And and like it shows this dichotomy of so if you really want to seek productivity and optimization, we've got to design work the way people are rather than how we fantasize them to be. To Ben's mm-hmm. point about, oh, well we could achieve this optimization if we looked at cohorts of, you know, body of work versus talent, skills, abilities, those kinds of things and matching rather than titles. But that becomes a management fiasco. And they're like, well, I mean, I don't know, man, they're paying you more money as a manager. Can you not handle the more detailed, challenging work? Um, Or like, I think of like, you know, Star Trek, big Star Trek friend, the Borg cubes, are those ships can be shaped any way to meet the challenge of the demand that's required. Whereas the USS Enterprise is like, nope, here's the ship you get. You're going to have to drive on that structure no matter what. And right. so we have, we have this emergent, like, so we're talking about the future of work. How do we become more organic and how we meet those challenges and adaptable to meet those challenges that we face in the work environment? So I, I think that kind of sets up kind of like, here's the work environment. I think most people know that stuff, maybe some of this agility, but let's move to why does humor help here? Humor is a, it's a skill that uh, expands your perspective of things. So, you know, when you say, you know, you work in a more specialized job, being able to find humor or uh, a different perspective, a different way of looking at things allows you to look at yourself differently, look at your job differently, look at the people around you differently, look at your challenges differently. And uh, opening up the workplace to that uh, can only create exponential growth if done the right way. Uh, like you were saying with uh, with the Borg or whatever, I'm not so familiar with, with Star Trek, 
but uh, I'm a Cleveland Browns fan. Get out fan. this shows. Yeah. Get out. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a Star Wars guy. What can I say? Uh, I connected, you know, I connected with Han Solo when I was a kid. I was like, I want to be that guy. Um, <laughs> but uh, I'm a Cleveland Browns fan. So I see every time they bring in a no, new coach, the coach wants to impose their scheme rather than who the, whoever the players are. So rather than adapting to the talent that he has around them, what he does is he brings in his own own system. And that's and that's the, an old industrial way of doing things. It's like, I came from this company. I'm coming to this new job. I don't care who I have here. This is what worked at the old place. This is what's going to work at the new place. And then so you're going to force people out. You're going to cause that unhappiness. People are going to be set, you know, a, a, against each other. And uh being able to take a step back and say, well, what's what's weird here? What's what's not working? What is working? Um, people, I, I can go for days on on what really humor is, but what human what humor does is it leans into our human element, like being able to see things differently. So let's say, uh, for example, I get reprimanded by my boss because I'm not creating the output that he wants. I can either say, well, that guy is, you know, he's a piece of shit. I, I hate him. I don't, I'm mad whenever he walks into the room. Or I can take a step back and, you know, find the humor in what they're doing in order to find the humor in what I'm doing. So humor almost gives us a, a level of accountability. So if I'm able to laugh at what I'm doing, like, here's what I'm doing, but I can be doing something differently uh, to get what I want or to get what other people want, that gives us a competitive edge over those who are more strict. Uh, with what's what yeah. they're dealing with at any given moment. Yeah, yeah, no, I, th this is fascinating, and it's interesting because because there actually is a fair amount of research on on humor itself, but also on humor and leadership and supervision and so forth. And I was doing a little bit of looking into this when we were preparing for this episode, and uh, in one of the articles by Bruce Avolio and some of his colleagues, and I'll put links to these in the show notes. They actually start off the article with a quote from William Hazlitt, and I believe it's from an essay called On Wit and Humor. And this, this quote, he says, from this is again from William Hazlitt, says, man is the only animal that laughs and weeps, for he is the only animal that is struck with the difference between what things are and what they ought to be. I think that speaks exactly to what you were just saying there about taking this different perspective and seeing the gap and in, in the, in the, the humor in everyday life. Yeah, absolutely. I love that quote uh, because, I mean, I could unpack it all day, but I think, you know, humans can learn from what we've done and base what we do next off of that, you know. And uh, I was watching my my cat the other. My cat gets outside and he eats grass. And every time he eats grass, he throws up. But he keeps doing it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like every time That's he goes like, outside. Yeah, if we're gonna fail. Let's fail forward. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, either you like grass so much, no. But uh, if if a person were to do something like that, not eat the eat grass part, but like keep making the same mistake over and over again, and then wondering why he's not getting anywhere, uh, that's you know that's an exercise in futility. So people are the only animals that could say, you know, there's a there's a herd of elk over there. Uh, let's plan a way to surround them and and kill them so we can get their meat and their you know tomorrow and we can save it and we can freeze it because we live in cold enough of climate. So, I mean, I, I I'm reading a lot about anthropology right now, so I'm gonna probably <laughs> dive back in there a, a cool. few different times. But I mean, that's 
that's what humor is. I look at humor when I mess up. I look at it as a stepping stone to get from where I am to where I want to be. And, uh, you know, life is a totally imperfect thing, but we try to be perfect. And that's where comedy comes in, because we don't have all the information to get mm -hmm. from point A to point B. And uh, so learn, like, to me, finding the funny and what I do wrong is the way to get what I want eventually, like achieve my goals or uh, achieve a certain accomplishment. Yeah, yeah. So what's the difference between humor and comedy? Humor is an internal process. Humor is more of a process of, of looking at something and, and thinking well, there's something else here. Whereas comedy is the art form of turning it into like a setup punchline or writing a story around it. Um, yeah, be, humor is the process, essentially. Yeah, and, yeah. It, and it is totally subjective to the person who's using it. And uh, that's the beauty. Uh, and, and then comedy is just communicating that with other people in a way that makes them laugh and uh, brings me, you know, that that serotonin, that that oxytocin, that dopamine right. hit. Yeah. I mean, that, that makes sense to me, the comedy piece, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you have to use certain cultural constructs to get a message. Like, we're using English right now because mm -hmm. that's what we both understand. In comedy, there's certain rules that people understand, and, and then there's a laugh. But mm -hmm. what I don't understand, and, and help me understand more, is like the internal process of humor. Because when I think of humor, it's like, is this the stuff that makes me laugh internally? And, and it can maybe compare that with the idea of growth. Yeah. Uh, well, our brains are constantly hit with incongruities. So like cognitive dissonance, right? Mm. And, uh, and humor is our brain's way of working out those problems. So we're dealing with two opposite ideas at the same time. And uh, humor is the tool that we use to connect them in a, in a new and novel way. So uh, in order to grow, you know, let's say, for example, I, I give a presentation and a line that always gets a laugh doesn't get a laugh. So in my brain, I'm like, well, that's funny. But then the reality is nobody laughed. So is it funny? So how can I connect these two things? And uh, <laughs> one of my one of my favorite stories to tell, uh, it was early on in my speaking career, I was giving a, a presentation in Richmond, Indiana, and I do this joke. I'm not going to go through the whole joke, but it ends with me joining a cult and uh, drinking the Kool-Aid. Right. So I, I, I do I do the <laughs> oh, joke. <no. laughs> Can you kind of see where this is going? So I do the joke and nobody laughs. There's one guy in the back of the room who's kind of like smiling and nodding, but everybody else is just stone faced. And in my head, I'm like, that line always works. What's going on here? Nobody laughed for the rest of the presentation either at any of the other lines. So, you know, I, at the end of the presentation, this woman comes up to me and she goes, you know, Jim Jones is from Richmond, Indiana, right? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> oh, snap. <laughs> and there are, <laughs> what a, what and there are people in this room who lost family members in Jonestown. Oh, no. oh, and no. so I am just, no, uh, no. I am, I am red in the face. I couldn't have gotten out of there faster. But the one guy who was smiling and nodding nudged me on the shoulder and he goes, hey, it was Flavor Aid. <laughs> It wasn't cool. So, and, and it took so long for me to make the connection to turn that into a story because it was so embarrassing. And it was, it was just that, that moment where I was like, I'm going to quit speaking. I'm going to quit speaking and I'm, I'm not going to get on a stage for the rest of my life. I felt, I felt terrible. I mean, that's yeah. maybe they thought I was trying to be edgy, uh, but uh, I also, I learned 
research where you're going. Uh, if you're going to tell a joke, make sure it's not offensive to those people. Uh, so I connected the, the two things that way and, uh, and turned this into a story that kind of punches down on yourself. And uh, I've kind of used that to, to uh, move forward as far as a, as a speaker and a, and a comedian. Well, but, yeah. you, know, and you probably covered this in your podcast, but we've all seen like Dave Chappelle. Like his jokes on trans people mm -hmm. went over very poorly. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Louis C.K. You know, you, you know, the list of people who in their prime were arguably at the top. I mean, I'm sorry. Chappelle is at the top of oh, the yeah. comedy field. Let's be honest, right? Uh, literally, so, he's performing comedy in a field now. <laughs> <right>. <laughs> but I mean, we're talking making mega bucks, doing all kinds of stuff. Mm-hmm. And yet we all have examples of these guys flying off the rails because of it's part of it is that probably the neurobiology of comedy when you're dealing with dicey topics, because, right, it's about incongruity in the pattern detections of life or holding those two cognitive dissonances in your mind at the same time. That in itself sets up, I mean, outside, I mean, Dilbert is funny. Mm -hmm. But he like I've never seen a Dilbert where I fell out of my chair. Right. 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 And, and that's kind of that sanitized corporate humor. We're like, well, the bosses stink and they don't get it and, and that kind of stuff. So how do you navigate that place of this? Like comedy is just ripe for like, you know, I call them the fart in church type jokes where mm -hmm. everybody's just offended and like go sit somewhere else. You know, how how. How are you navigating that space uh, as as you navigate the world here? It's, I mean, just like in a workplace, you know, you learn how to toe the line, you know, and then if if you tend if you go a little bit too far over, you know, okay, I'm going to take a step back. It's just a matter like comedy is just making connections, whether it's in your brain those two unlike ideas or connecting with other people and finding a way to meet that middle ground. Uh, now, Chappelle's at the top of his game. In his last special, he did uh, have some jokes about trans people that that didn't go over great. Yeah, and he doubled down on them, which yeah. was like, wow, man, this is crazy. But if you, if you go back and listen to that bit that he does, the very beginning, he communicates that he doesn't understand it. So he, what he's doing is he's communicating his misunderstanding of what's going on. And that's where, so every line he says after that He's kind of joking about how he doesn't understand it. And it may seem like it's it's coming at the expense of, you know, LGBT people. But he, he what he's doing is he's trying to make sense of it, but on a huge stage. And uh, and that, I mean, that's that's another thing of what what humor is. It's just making sense of the world that we're in. And for me personally, if something bad happens to me, my instinct is to find what's funny. Now, I've learned that I shouldn't communicate that with everybody. That's internal know? humor. Time, yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> but it allows, you know, it allows me to take that next step. You know, if, if something, you know, if a, a tragedy happens or, you know, I've learned that I can't laugh about it right away with other people. You know, have, you have to know your audience. You have to make a connection with your audience. And Right. Yeah. And, you know, it also brings to my mind when we bring this back to the workplace and leadership and being a supervisor and how you may or may not use humor. Uh, you know, there's there's some research out there that, that looks at different types of humor. And in particular, I'm thinking of a study that was in the Journal of Organizational Behavior uh, in 2012, it published. And 
they looked at aggressive humor, right? And, right. and in, not shockingly, but aggressive humor is not particularly good. Like that can be stressful. Uh, if, if you have a, a, a boss who is using a lot of kind of aggressive humor that's coming at the expense of others, that's not what we're talking about is something that's appropriate for the workplace. Uh, so we're going to kind of get into that, I think, a little bit about how you may, might be able to use humor in a good way. But maybe before we go there, just, you know, there are some good outcomes of humor generally. And so maybe we can uh, talk a little bit about some of those. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, God, there's so many positive outcomes. Uh, I mean, it's it reads like a like a side effect or yeah, a side effect uh, portion of one of those prescription drug commercials. Uh, but the big <laughs> ones, the big ones are are uh, a higher productivity uh, because you know being able to use humor, like I said, is uh, seeing the world a little bit differently, and uh, so that that's more of a long term result is, is more productivity because if if I'm looking at my job the same way every day I'm going to do my job the same way every day but if I think well there's something more to this I could do this a little bit differently like try one new thing and see how that works and if it doesn't work fine I'll go back to the way I'm already doing it or I'll try something different and uh, that engages our brains because as hunter gatherers we are our, our pleasure centers are lit up when we figure out new things you know like mm -hmm. if you when you figure out a joke the same parts of your brain light up as when you solve a problem. So solving problems and using humor are both one and the same. And uh, that's so, interesting. Yeah, that 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 was the one thing where I was like, oh, I can talk about this. That's pretty <laughs> cool. Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, there's also interesting research out there. And I don't have the study at the, my fingertips right now. But uh you know, looking at how people use humor in the workplace for for sense making, right? When things are mm -hmm. really ambiguous, when uh, maybe it's something that really uh, uncertain that they're trying to struggle with, uh, sometimes humor can really help to recenter or or maybe add a new perspective, uh, calm people down, make them think a little bit differently, and and help them cope uh, more effectively in those situations. There's also a whole area of literature on gallows humor, you know, people who are doing really um, difficult types of work and how they use kind of dark humor to cope. Um, these are all very human things that we do, uh, and, and it certainly has a place or at least it manifests itself in the workplace um, and how we make our make sense of it all. Yeah, it separates us, uh, separates us from the conflict or the adversity or the yeah. trauma. Is what it, it allows us to kind of take a step outside of ourselves and uh, see what we're doing and measure that against what's going on. And, uh, you know, that, that, that is what I think is one of the most powerful tools in doing that is, like I said earlier, it gives us more of a, a sense of accountability. Um, so, you know, if something bad happens and, and you fly off the handle, if you can take that step outside of yourself and say, well, what's wrong here? Uh, what's something new I can learn from this? And now what can I do? Uh, humor is a catalyst that kind of gets that going rather than just living in it, which is what a lot of people want to do. Yeah. So, you know, it's so interesting. We're learning all this stuff about humor. It's like, it's good. It's a growth. It opens up new problem solving. You think everybody'd be like, man, that guy's laughing over there. Awesome. But yet we laugh sometimes. You're like, why are you laughing? That's so inappropriate. Mm -hmm. Or what was that blues traveler? traveler song i'm the kind of guy that laughs at a funeral you know like yeah i mean that juxtaposition of of humor can be helpful and it can be like really bad and like hurt the people around you 
You know, somebody comes to your house crying. Hey, my my dog just died, and you're like, ah, <laughs> like no, no, I've that's not that. what you do, right? Yeah, but you know, but like if our logical break, right? Because we're jiling in between that rational human part of us and that illogical emotional chimp that exists in all of us. So there's some good ways to do this in the workplace, right? Mm-hmm. And there's some like like laugh at a dead dog kind of ways to do it in the workplace which don't sure. do it don't laugh at a dead dog for those in that for the listeners that fell asleep for the last two minutes but um <laughs> so so what are some of the best ways to incorporate humor well, i think first things first uh, i think you have to lean into what's happening uh you know the yes and principle of improv is it was a it was a transcendent learning experience for me. Cause I grew up watching whose lines it anyway. And mm-hmm. I thought for sure that, you know, they had a script or they knew what they were going to the, the prompts, what the prompts were going to be. And uh, then I took an improv course and I learned that they built these scenes based off of a simple principle of agreeing or accepting what the other performer gave them and adding to it. Um, so, you, you know, that, that is the baseline of, of collaboration. Essentially. Yeah. So j- j- describe yes. And for the uninitiated. So if I uh, were to say I'm the president, right? If we were doing an improv scene and I come in and, and I say, you know, I'm the president and, you know. Uh, yeah, so I would come back and be like, yes, and you need to sign this important order banning dogs from the state of Wisconsin. Exactly. <laughs> and exactly. then you immediately and then I, go, and it's like, yes, because I'm tired of those dogs getting out of Wisconsin. You right, know they need to stay in Wisconsin where they belong. All right, I have a strict only dogs in Wisconsin policy. <laughs> we talked about this in the election. Right, it, it's it's an expository. Mm-hmm. The yes and doesn't stop the conversation. Mm-hmm. Right, It because people are going to come to you with ideas or thoughts and for you to tell them no or yes, but it kind of stifles that, that creative uh, uh, snowballing that can happen. Yeah. Now, no, I, I just want to highlight that because I, I've come across senior leaders in organizations who were very smart, very well-intentioned, uh, wanted the best for their people and their organizations. And yet they, they failed to kind of master this, this idea when someone would come to them with a new idea. And they would immediately sometimes jump into asking many questions about it. And that was perceived by the employees as, gosh, this person doesn't really like my idea. You know, I, I had this idea. Maybe it is a little bit half-baked, but I wanted to share it with the boss. And now I'm getting all these questions and I'm doubting myself and I don't know what I'm doing here, right? And it turned into a negative. What I love about this yes and approach is that when you say yes and then you add to it, uh, you're validating that the other person has a perspective. And you're, you're saying that's okay, right? Yes. And let's, let's keep talking. It's kind of, instead of doing the either or, or putting a but in there, because then it kind of invalidates what the other person had to say. Yeah. If you want people to come to you with ideas, because they have, they're looking at things differently from you. Like you're, you see things through your own perspective. Somebody comes to you with an idea. That's a valuable opportunity. Even if it's not a good idea, it's a valuable opportunity to kind of see things through their eyes and maybe look at a problem a little bit differently. You never know where that, where that back and forth is going to lead you. It could lead you to the solution you've been looking for. But if you, like you said, if you, if you start questioning them, it stops their creative thinking process. And now they're on the defense. Yeah. So Absolutely like right. if you're sitting in a, a your supervisor calls you in, your VP calls you in, you're a director and, and you're like, oh, well, this wasn't on this calendar. What's going on? Mm. And it gives you some feedback. You know, hey, Chris Everett, you're a numbskull. 
<laughs> yes. And what do we plan to do about that? Right. <laughs> right. So yeah. like you need to be like, great, your your solution focused. And but to that point with the Ben was talking about the negative humor. Mm. Like I was at this one place. Every, it was during the recession. Every, nobody had their jobs around. And, the, and this manager said, asked a question, goes, anyone, anyone, the prize is continued employment. <laughs> And we had already Whoa. laid off a bunch of people mm. and everybody's just like, you know, if you didn't throw up in your mouth or get dry mouth at that time, like you were a zombie. Okay. And it was just like, well, how the heck do I respond to that? Like that's, that's not a yes. And that's a, that's a drive by crapping on an individual. That's not humor. It's not funny. Right. You know, that's not a growth process internally. That's not comedy even really. Um, right. Read, read the room. So <laughs> read the room, read the room. Um, so, I, yeah, that's, I, I think the outcome, uh, you need to have that in mind too. Um, as a, as a comedian, you want people to feel better having come and seen you perform when comedians do offensive material. It, uh, the, the goal is to make sense of that topic, but also have you feeling good by the end of it. If your intent isn't to make other the, the person's day better for you having said that, probably don't say that thing. Mm. So the aggressive humor, you know, you don't want work to turn into a Comedy Central style roast that'll just set people against each other. Uh, you don't want to punch down on yourself so much that other people feel bad for you. Uh, what you do want to do is you want to make connections for other people that they might not be able to see in a way that they can use it as a, as a springboard or as a stepping stone. Uh, especially, you know, if you're handling something like layoffs or, or you know, whatever's what's going on in the world right now. <clears throat> the goal is to have other people feeling better so they're in a creative headspace where they say, okay, now I'm looking at this problem a little bit differently. And right. if, that's, if that's not the end result, then rethink your strategy going into it. Yeah. When I love what you, you said it kind of casually and, and it's something that you do as a comedian, as a speaker of reading the room like that's but, but I think that more leaders could benefit just from that idea mm -hmm. of reading the room, because that requires you to do a, a number of kind of you know psychologically complex things fairly quickly where you're looking at social cues, trying to see what people's facial expressions are, are doing, trying to understand your audience better. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I come across a lot of people who just aren't good listeners at work. And I think that might be a good place to start if you are trying to harness the positive benefits of humor in your leadership style. Right. And listening is a key component of improv as well. If you're not mm. listening to what the other person is saying and you're thinking about what you're going to say next, that that's not a conversation. That's you trying to, like, one up that person or, you know, and, and it totally changes the dynamic of it. You know, you have to really, you know, that's what communication is. It's listening first yeah. and foremost. And I do it too. You know, I, I like to, you know, I like, sometimes I like to be the loudest person in the room. That's why I do. That's why I'm a comedian. <laughs> but, but also I'm able to laugh at that and be like, oh, I should have listened better. Uh, you know, I, that's my immediate, if something doesn't go well, if, if a set doesn't go well, I, I uh, immediately listen to, you know, what, what the audience is telling me. And I'm able to, now that I've been doing it for long enough, I'm able to do that on stage and kind of start a conversation with them before I go into the next bit. And and it, the same is true as a you know, somebody in a leadership position. If you do something and you're you're hearing, if, if you enact a new policy, for example, and you, you're hearing murmurs of discontent with other people, you, you can't, I mean, you can 
doubling down on it is just going to set people further away from you. They're going to, you're going to push them further away, but creating a dialogue rather than a monologue is a, a key component of, of listening. You know, I've yeah. sat in on so many meetings where the boss will come in and then just for 30 minutes, just make all the points that he wants to make and then barely even turn it over to, que to questions. Right. Whereas in more effective, like a more effective leadership strategy would be to let the room, let the people in the room ask questions or offer ideas first and then work from there. Yeah. Now, do you think there are any kinds of aspects of the, the environment or the organizational culture that that can better support the use of humor um, or, you know, kind of this this the honesty that's required for for humor to take place and be used productively? I think leaders need to stop taking themselves so seriously and, and, uh, and <laughs> you know, stop being the always right kind of mentality. And yeah. I never I'm a make manager, a mistake. gosh yeah. darn it. I'm somebody important. <laughs> I am somebody. I'm a candle Listen. maker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's in my family name. I'm Candleman and I'm, <laughs> this is who I am and I'm the best candle maker there is. No, uh, <laughs> you, you make yourself unlikable, you know? People aren't going to come to you with ideas if that's who you are. You know, if you're always right, you're not being human. And uh, and if you want people as a leader, you want people to, to respect you and uh, you want people to like you. And if they, you know, because if you do that, you unlock all these intrinsic motivators in those other people. So showing some vulnerability, being willing to say, hey, you know what? I don't have the answers. Maybe one of you does. I'm willing to listen. Sorry, guys. Humor, right? Sorry, guys. You were assigned the manager that doesn't have all the answers. <laughs> I'm just glad to be here. <laughs> I just saw a guy in a suit and tie. He looked like he, he knew what he was doing. First day, manager walks in. Yeah, I uh, I don't know. What is this company? What do we What do we do here? That's right. There, there's you know, there's a difference between that and being willing to say, you know, hey, I make mistakes sometimes. Right. You know, that, that That's one of those things of, you know, you're embracing vulnerability. And it's that vulnerability. If you can do the vulnerability thing and the humor thing well, that just changes the tone on a team or in an org. People trust you. People like you. People want to come to you with, with their ideas. You know, being being the guy that's right all the time or being the person who takes credit and then shifts the blame when uh, when things don't go well. You know, people don't People don't want to spend time with that guy. They don't want to invite him to dinner unless there's a promotion or something at stake, you yeah. know, uh, versus I want to invite you over to dinner because I genuinely care about you because you genuinely care about me. Mm -hmm. And that's what vulnerability does. Is it shows that it's okay to be human. It's okay to mess up. And especially if you're willing to be vulnerable, readjust, take new action, and then, you know, see what happens from there. That that delivers a stronger message than me telling you what to do and do as I say, not as I do kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's interesting too, when you think about uh, using humor and if you think of leaders who do it effectively over time, it uh, it, it kind of creates more, you know, additional language that, that happens in the organization or in the team. And one thing that we know about strong teams is that they have a shared language. Like this is where the inside joke can really become something that binds people together and it can become part of the identity and actually can be used for good purposes, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, one other thing that you had mentioned that when we were talking about this episode was how, you know, it, it can create these shared experiences. So tell us a little bit what, what you think about that with regard to humor. 
Well, think about when you when you watch a comedy. I mean, now we haven't really been able to gather in large groups and uh, enjoy a comedy show like we used to. Mm. You know, when you watch a comedy or you watch a comedy special and you're watching it by yourself and you laugh, like, it's funny. But if you're in a room full of people, that is magnified. It takes things that you might not laugh at at home and you're losing your mind over them. Uh, it's it's that, that human element, you know, being, you are not, you know, you are not different skin colors. You are not different socioeconomic statuses. And this works in the workplace too. You're not boss. You're not employee. You're just two people who find the same thing funny and you're laughing together. And it's, it's, we're at our most human and our most vulnerable when we are doing things like laughing. And uh, so if you're able to incorporate humor as part of your culture and laugh together as a team, that creates a social bond on a subconscious level that you wouldn't get uh, if you're just doing, let's say, casual Fridays. Great. Now we're just wearing jeans and, you know, I'm sweating underneath them. Cool. Uh, you know, or <laughs> I mean, there are all these different engagement strategies. Like a buddy of mine works for a marketing firm in New York and I mean, they make a ton of money, but they they have an open bar during work and that's like their engagement strategy. I mean, do you love your job? And he's like, well, why do you think we have alcohol? And that's not the kind of, <laughs> it was like, you know, no, that's why we drink. <laughs> right. Like that is their shared experience. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and that, yeah. that just struck me as funny is what, what are you trying to overcompensate for? And uh, <laughs> just being able to laugh together and, and creating like little things. I mean, it's 2020, you know, we're going to, we're going to waste time on social media at work, but you can avoid that by, you know, taking a little bit of time out of the day and having, you know, a, a, a team meeting where you do like an improv exercise or a theater game or watch something funny and, you know, other people contribute like a funny video they saw or a funny meme or or read a funny article that they read and and just little things like that. And you can do that virtually too. You can send those things over email. Uh, I've talked to people who work at organizations that do little like board games or over, over Zoom, or not board games, but things like catchphrase and things like that, mm -hmm. uh, that just, it takes a little bit of time out of the day, but then the energy level afterwards is elevated and, the, and that gets the creative juices flowing. And, uh, you know, short term, you'd think of it from a managerial perspective as a waste of time, but the, the benefits the benefits outweigh that that little bit of time because how many meetings have you been to that should have been an email anyway? So you know, <laughs> yeah, sure. so so use oh some of that gosh. time. And, and another thing, like think about the commute to work. You're probably listening to talk radio, or you probably watch the news before the you Indigo get to work. The Indigo podcast. All right. of you yes. are listening to yes. the Indigo podcast. <laughs> That's like, a great subscribe. way to start the day. <laughs> subscribe, subscribe. Tell your friends. Okay, sorry. Go ahead. It's a great way. Yeah. <laughs> Subtle plug. Subtle plug. That's what we're about here. <laughs> I was thinking about getting some subtle plugs myself. Anyway, um, <laughs> so uh, a lot David of people... and I are follicularly challenged. Yeah, I'm for, a... for those that are not watching because it's right. a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm I'm a few weeks behind you, but I'm, we'll be in the Our same feelings. boat. <laughs> um, so yeah, so people tend to have this negative kind of way they start the day you know maybe the kids they want to go to school and they had to deal with that and then yeah. uh, you know the, the the cat ate grass and threw up that's called a callback um and then yeah. uh, you you know you get in traffic on your way to work you watch the news and everything is doom and gloom and then you get to the office and then somebody else has their story about their morning and now you've got to one-up them and then another person swoops in and talks about the worst thing happened to them so 
starting a day on a positive note, just like a quick 10, 15 minute meeting where we do like an improv exercise or share something funny that happened to us. Uh, there, there's organizations that do what's called the jerk of the week where, you know, they, 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 um, I'm they like talk 50 about... weeks running at the winning of that. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I've dealt with the worst jerk. Uh, but if you can find ways to like communicate, you know, uh, a laughter in, in, a, in a positive way to kind of interrupt that snowball effect of negativity and then set a new course for the day, it, it changes the dynamic of a work day. Um, yeah. I, I was uh, speaking in Ann Arbor right before this all happened. And uh, a woman there talked about how her company does a uh, funny Friday. So like 2 p.m. on a Friday when people just can't wait to get to the weekend and their energy levels are drained and they just had lunch two hours ago. So they're starting to hit that food coma. Carb coma, kinda. yeah. Oh, yeah. They have uh, funny Fridays where they get together in a meeting room for 20 minutes. They share, you know, funny videos, like I said, like funny articles, and it just creates a boost of energy that just carries them to the into the weekend. A great way to, to incorporate humor, too, is Monday mornings. Give people something to look forward to, something out of the ordinary. So, you know, you can turn this over to your team. You know, if you're not a particularly funny person or if you're a more analytical person and you're thinking, well, I'm not funny, I can't incorporate humor into work. There are people around you who are. So this is a great mm. opportunity to let them explore their creativity and what they enjoy doing. And like you were saying uh, at the very beginning of this, incorporating their talents into their job description so that their job description is a little more fluid. Um, you know, finding... yeah, you're the team team uh, humor officer. Right. <laughs> the class clown, you know. Right. Yeah. <laughs> there are companies that have humor departments, which, which I think is – a great oh, wow. idea. Yeah, just a team of people that come together, uh, open up, you know, open it up for anybody to join and, uh, you know, open sharing of ideas. Make sure you always have that yes and mentality when it comes to sharing ideas. And you never know what 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 sort of fun things your people can come up with that will actually intrinsically motivate people to want to be to work at work. Because that's what we want. We want our people to want to be there. Because what happens when somebody wants to be at work? They are they're not more, on social media as much. They're not on social media, right? <laughs> Complaining about work, right? right. Uh, they're not. <laughs> it's like, I'm going to tweet about this. <laughs> Hashtag two weeks notice. But, uh, <laughs> they, you know, they're, they're, they want to be there. So they're more likable. They, other people want to be around them. They're looking forward to dealing with clients and customers. They're looking forward to seeing you as a leader. They're, uh, they are a positive brand ambassador. For you. Mm -hmm. They're telling their friends how cool it is to work at this place. That they're sharing on social media the cool things that your organization's doing. They're going above and beyond. They're helping, you know, when their work is done, they're going to help other people who are uh, falling behind or, you know, who could use a hand. You know, they're, they're just, it's the little things that over time on stacked on top of each other can totally change culture and change the narrative of what we tell ourselves about work. You know, if I know I'm going to go to work and I'm going to laugh with my coworkers and have a good time doing my job, no matter how stressful it gets, you know, if we can take a second, laugh about how stressful it is and how stressed out we are and how ridiculous and, and uh, you know, the, the things we are, how ridiculous the things we're doing are, you know, when we get stressed and then go get back to the task at hand, that totally changes the dynamic. 
Yeah. 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 So let's, uh, I just want to recap a couple of these things that you've mentioned because there's some really good items here with regard to some suggestions for leaders and how they might incorporate humor more in the workplace. You know, we talked about this idea of the the yes and to build upon people's conversations and having that flow and, and making sure that you're validating what other people say. We talked about kind of creating that environment where you can have that vulnerability, where you can have that honesty in, in your conversation flow. Also about knowing your audience and reading them, making sure you're matching what's appropriate in that situation, using humor to uplift people, not to put them down. Right. Uh, and, and I think, you know, one thing you mentioned too, David, was just leaders, you need to, you need to get over yourselves and take yourselves a little bit less seriously, uh, and realize that it's okay to screw things up. People know you screwed up, right? It's not, it's not a, just you ignoring that fact isn't going to make it. Yeah, not you're happen, paid so. for your vulnerability guys. Like, yeah. it's not just about knowing and you got promoted. That's right. That's right. Right. Because you want to bring out the best in everyone around you. So um, let's transition now, you know, a few things that perhaps you should avoid when uh, trying to incorporate humor in the workplace. And, you know, we've talked about the idea of aggressive humor not being helpful. Um, also things like, you know, shooting down or taking credit for other people's ideas. What are some of the things that you've come across, David, or some ideas that you have around things not to do? Yeah. Um well, you, even if you are stressed out, you know, you can't, you can't, you can't bring other people into that. You know, you have to lean, I guess, what not to do. We should talk more about that. Um, when you got to be open to feedback. So if, if somebody comes to you as a leader and offers you feedback, even if they're not doing, you know, the sandwich method where they're saying, Hey, you do this great, but I hate the sandwich know. method because the minute somebody says something but. nice, I'm like, where's the crap sandwich coming? It's, <laughs> I don't really, I, I shut down. I can't even hear the good. And you're like, is that it? And they're like, yeah, I was just telling you something nice. Yeah. Like, ah, oh, my crap sandwich cookie method has already inoculated me to nicety in the workplace. Right. <laughs> and, and, right. And, and that it's obvious what you're doing. I mean, there, there's a way to do that. I, I think people tend to to give you that positive feedback and then, but, but instead of, but it's like, and here's how you can like use that to overcome whatever problem that you were coming to them with. So, you know, here's what you're good at and here's how you can use that is better than here's what you're good at, but, you know, so uh, definitely avoid that. Um, feedback is one of the most powerful uh, tools for perspective. Even if you don't use the other person's idea, even if you, you know, even if at first you're resistant to it, remember that they have a different perspective from you and that's welcome. Mm -hmm. Um, Another thing you you don't want to do is, you know, you shoot down other people's ideas, let those ideas live a little bit. don't definitely don't take credit for other people's ideas, you know, even though you were the one that facilitated it, even though you were the one that, you know, did the yes. And if you come to a solution, don't be like, that was me. Mm-hmm, Always right. give credit to other people first, because one of, one of the key drivers of disengagement is lack of recognition. People want to be recognized for, you know, for their positive input. Sure. Sure. Um, so as a leader, you know, it's definitely more important to, to give credit and not, uh, not take it away from other people. Yeah, yeah. keep going. These are awesome. Right. Give give us some more. Uh, don't, if you create, let's say you create a humor department, you can't give them a list of rules <laughs> of, by which to abide by. If they know that the outcome has to be, you know, positive and uplifting, they can use that as a guideline and work backwards. So, you know, the things that they come up with, if 
say, no, that's going to make so-and-so, you know, feel badly about themselves, you know, starting from the end point of a positive outcome and working backwards is much better than, than, you know, telling people what they can do and can't do. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's, that's a loose, just guideline. They, there's parameters within which they can work, but not just strict. No, you have to do, you know, just like comedy, there's no one way to write a joke. If you listen to any comedy podcast and they're talking about their process, everybody's process is different. Everybody has their own unique way of looking at things and doing things and leaning into their talents and experiences. So imposing guidelines are going to limit creativity, even though you think you're doing them good. Uh, it, starting from that that positive outcome where other people are feeling good and working backwards is a better way to do that. Yeah. So um, it seems like it's you know you, you really just you don't want to force it. Right. Um, you know, because then, no. then it just then it just becomes like artificial and garbage, right? I mean, there's right. there's pl- plenty of stuff that we already have at work that's mandatory. Already, plenty of things that we have rules and policies and procedures around. So, uh, don't take this and turn it into some other corporate program that just sucks the life out of everybody. Hey guys, you have to laugh at least ten times every day. <laughs> Go like, and, you and, can't... And, you, yeah, and especially if I tell the joke, you got to laugh at my jokes, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. I'm the boss. I'm the funniest. No. <laughs> No, that's not that's not what we're saying, you know. Yeah. You can't even though humor programs in the workplace do create positive outcomes, you can't make them mandatory. Like if I get on stage and I tell a joke and I think it's funny and nobody laughs, if I yell at the audience to laugh, it's not going to make them want to laugh. They're going to they're going to hate me now. So, yeah, I mean, and that's true in the workplace too. You know, you can't make humor mandatory and that goes back to reading the room. Um yeah, using humor as a tool to cut down and, and ridicule other people, not good. Um, definitely the positive outcome is, I mean, that's what this is always going to go back to. You know, you want to create a positive outcome. You want people to feel good. You want people to feel energized. If what I'm, if what we're doing isn't doing that, then it's time to course correct. Yeah. Uh, creating humor in isolation too, that which means uh, on an individual level. Like team exercises to incorporate humor into the workplace are one of the most effective ways of doing it. Have you guys heard of uh, Peppercom? No. no. So it's a company out of New York. When they hire new people, their onboarding process includes stand-up comedy training. And they do a five-minute <laughs> set. Uh, they, they have somebody on their team who trains people to write and perform a five-minute comedy set. And what this does, even people who have stage fright, even people who the last thing they want to do is get on stage and talk in front of people, what this allows them to do is talk out things that annoy them, talk out things that make them angry, and uh, everybody's doing it. So it creates a sense of connection between people rather than, you know, one person gets hired for a certain job and they're the only person that's going to do it. That's going to create, that's going to create toxicity, even though the intent is good, you know, it's good that the intended result isn't positive. So they create a a group shared experience uh, and, and kind of build the culture around that, which, which is, I I think it's, it's one of the coolest things that I've uh, ever seen. I mean, as far as, you know, what what one corporation does. Uh, But I think it's, uh, I think it's funny that our education system, uh, it it trains us to work alone. It trains Mm -hmm. us because we test alone, we're ranked individually, and then, and then we're thrust into a workplace where we have to know how to work together. It's like, well, we weren't trained for this. And, right. and I think that's, that's silly. So creating shared experiences where we're all doing this together is much more positive than, than you know, individual contests. Then that's where the politics come into play. That's where the backstabbing comes into play. That's where the gossip comes into play. 
So, uh, so trying to find ways to create new humor programs individually is not as positive as in a group setting. Yeah, that's, that's great. That's great. So, you know, this has just been a fantastic conversation with you, David, talking about humor in the workplace. And, you know, we talked about the work landscape and how many aspects of it are not positive for a lot of people and some ways in which humor can help. And also just some good do's and don'ts around incorporating humor into the workplace and into leadership. So this is fantastic. Um, David, I'll, I'll let you have some final words. Any other things that you'd like to share with our audience and also let people know where they can get a hold of you or learn more about what you do? Sure. Well, I always say, don't try to do everything at once. Hmm. Uh, This is, you know, incorporating something as faux pas as humor has been in the workplace into your workplace all at once is not going to work. You're going to get met with resistance. It's little gradual changes, or it's, if you, if you feel like you're surrounded by curmudgeons, find that one person who, who brightens up other people's day. You know, find that one person who you can always find laughing in the workplace and, and spend more time with them. Try to kind of uh, pick up on what they're seeing and how, and how they get through the workday, especially in a stressful situation like we're in now. Um, no matter what the situation is, there's always a different way to look at it. First and foremost, you know, life, looking at life as though you're behind the camera on the set of a movie. If you're not getting the shot you want, all you got to do is move the camera. And humor is kind of a life hack in doing that. Uh, I, I awesome. think, uh, I mean, it's one of the, yeah, that, I mean, that's my parting word of advice. If, if you start to feel stressed or, or angry, realize that you're feeling stressed or angry, but realize also that there is another way to look at it. There is something funny there. You don't have to know what it is, but just knowing that that is there gives you power over that external circumstance. Fantastic. So where can people uh, find you on the web or how can they get a hold of you? Uh, my uh, my website, my, my uh, watercoolercomedy.org. You can also yeah. find uh, me at davidhorningcomedy.com. I'm at the David Horning on Twitter, uh, Instagram. Uh, I'm on Facebook. And then the podcast is called You Can't Laugh at That. It is on all streaming platforms. I have uh, I have transitioned my my speaking into fully virtual as well, so you know that's that's been a fun experiment. And I'm uh, sure. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, just before we started recording, my dog barked, and and it's, there's always <laughs> one person who doesn't who isn't muted, and I get that. And and but uh, no, it's been a, it's been it's been a lot of fun. Uh, kind of learning how to adapt to this because people need we need to laugh now. David, this has been a journey for me personally. Like Ben and I came off a rough conversation into this episode. And I got to say, just chatting with you has been a real nice catharsis. And I've I've learned a lot in this episode. Um, So me too. For for people that didn't get the deluge of awesomeness of how to contact David, those will be in the show notes. So we'll we'll put all his Instagram, all, all the all the things that he has. And and reach out to David. I think he can do some really cool things for you guys. Yeah, if you have questions, anything like that, my email is on my website, so you can contact me. Wonderful. Yeah. Well, David Horning, thank you so much for being a part of the Indigo Podcast. Hey, this has been so much fun, you guys. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Indigo Podcast. If you like this podcast, please consider helping us by rating us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, telling your friends about us, having us on your podcast, or mentioning us on social media. Our website is www.indigopodcast.com. 
where you can access more information about us and this episode. Thanks again, and we look forward to talking with you again soon.